This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Guillaume Laidet. Guillaume is a, is a watch entrepreneur, and that just means that he's involved in a lot of businesses, which is exciting, and we'll talk about some of them. We, we, we probably can't talk about everything in this particular chat, but you're hot off your latest project, which is yet another new brand called Argon. What's so special about it? Yes, uh, yes, correct. Um, it's, uh, at first, it was a a side project. Uh, I met uh, Theo Offray, who is a genius watchmaker, uh, doing a crazy tourbillon, uh, all handmade in Paris, doing like five pieces a year at uh, 140,000 USD with crazy finishing. I met this this guy in Paris uh, last summer, thanks to our common friend uh, Etienne Malek, who is the founder of Batik. And uh, we sympathized. He showed me some crazy ideas, some crazy design he had in mind to make a more futuristic watches for, uh, but for more affordable price than what he is doing with his tourbillon. And, uh, that's how we met. That's how we started to work together. And, uh, and we launched this, uh, crazy Kickstarter a few days ago and, uh, and, uh, are, uh, almost to reach, uh, 1 million USD, uh, I hope in a, in a few days. So already 800,000 something. So, so it's, uh, a crazy side project that can become more than that. Now, this is one of many Kickstarter crowdfunding campaigns that you've done. Do you happen to know offhand how many Kickstarter campaigns you've done? But I, I started, uh, in fact, my um, entrepreneur career thanks to Kickstarter uh, with uh, William L. 1985 back in 2015. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started to work for uh, Zenith at LVMH and Gégère uh, Lecoultre at Richemont. And when I quit to do my own uh, own brand, uh, I started with Kickstarter. So I made one. I made. I think I made two campaigns with uh, with uh, with William L. Then I, I moved to uh, only the, the online website and uh, and classic distribution. And uh, and then I I didn't do any Kickstarter for like uh, uh, six years, I think. And uh, because Nevada, we didn't use it at all. Vulcan, not at all. And Excelsior Park, no. But for Argon, as it was more like a futuristic design and more des- fin, design uh, that can speak, I think, to an audience out of the only watchmaking uh, audience, not only the watch nerds, but also the space spaceship, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars uh, aficionados. That's why we choose to, to launch it on, uh, on Kickstarter. Now, Kickstarter was an interesting phenomenon. You know, I, I, I think it's a little bit less active right now than it was. But during its heyday, it seemed that there was watch projects on Kickstarter all the time. Some, you know, really big campaigns that, you know, received over a million dollars. To talk a little bit about why you think Kickstarter was so good and so powerful and helped so many. Like, What, what was the magic that Kickstarter brought to the table? Kickstarter brought on the table the, um, a, a new way to 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 build a brand without to make a, a first uh, cash deposit to buy stock and to enable you to make some pre-orders and to open your audience uh, to more people than only uh, you and your friends. I think it, it, it brings you um, uh, a new audience that you cannot reach only by yourself and uh, and you can uh, gather all those audience and and send them to the Kickstarter project. After the bad thing is that there was too many projects for too many rounds, a lot of crap also, to be honest, and a lot of people who, for a lot, some projects who just took the money and never deliver or had some R&D issues and, or, or I never know. So I think then the, the platform lack of trust, probably. And so if you, uh, if you want now to start from, zero and do just a Kickstarter and say, hello, I'm creating a new brand. It's crazy. Uh, come, it will not necessarily work. What we were able to do with Theo is because we bring our own um, audience and, and aficionados from both our worlds. His world is more like the independent, crazy, uh, uh, expensive watch. Me, it's more like the enterprise level of Swiss brands. And uh, I think the the good thing was the complementarity between us and to to our 
our project was to bring the cool stuff you can find on uh, MBNF, Urwerk, uh, uh, Grubble Force, enfin, this kind of crazy watches that is very hard to, to, to get and buy. But with an affordable prices between 1,005 and 2,000 with a cool complication, we have a jumping hour developed by Theo on this uh, on this space one that's also what what speak to to the people uh, who like the watch and the crazy design and uh, assembled in France with a swiss based movement so all of that are the great ingredient and and we thought that kickstarter could be a good uh, a good way to gather all that i want to spend a little bit more time discussing the revolution that kickstarter you know really introduced and that had to do with the sort of how, the way that you could finance a company yeah. Um, let's let's say before Kickstarter, if you wanted to make a product, you had to def- you had to fund the product, mm-hmm. and then if you wanted to sell the product, you had to make a brand that would that was the originator of the product, and then there was some type of re- retail side, and the brand could sell, especially in this online days. And previous to that, the brand couldn't sell, so you had to do multiple things before you could ever get a product into a position in front of a consumer where they're like, do I want to spend money on it? Kickstarter changes all of this and kind of combines the world of investing with the world of manufacturing and also retail. It's this interesting hybrid between a couple of worlds. And what it does is it allows consumers to be pitched on an idea that sometimes has is from a brand new company or brand new brand And they can say, I will back it. It wasn't that I was buying something, but you would back a project. And there's sort of a complicated set of legalities and and, and terms that go behind what that even means. But you were basically pre-ordering something. You were saying, I'm putting money down for something that somebody has planned that in most instances they haven't even prototyped yet with the confidence that they will be able to deliver what they said they were going to deliver in the time that they said they were going to deliver it. Now, this was a, a big risk, of course. It, it, it put a lot of risk on the consumer, but it also made it possible to cut out so much of the costs so that if your project was successful, you could make something and deliver it to consumers for a price far less than most people had ever um, really experienced. Would you, would you agree with that statement? Would you add anything to that? Yeah, exactly. In fact, you, you, you also get a lot of uh, distribution costs. So that's how you can also be able to, to sell at this price point because as you sell direct to consumer and you pre-sell direct to consumer, you cut the distribution and you cut the stock cost. So that's what also explained that for Argon, for example, we came with this price because if we didn't do a Kickstarter on this, uh, the watch will cost probably like five to 10,000 USD. And where we will not sell it because it will be too expensive. And for this kind of price, people will buy an Omega, Wardex, and something more well-known, you know. Now, now, Kickstarter really did prove, in my opinion, just how price-sensitive the modern watch industry is. And the idea is that if you get someone really excited about something, they still won't buy it unless it's something that they feel they can afford, which seems obvious, but... I think the watch industry tried to make things really beautiful and then hope that people would reach really high. And I yeah. think what's true is that especially in Western economies, consumers know exactly how much they can afford and don't really spend beyond their means with luxury objects like watches. Very few people go into debt, for example, in order to buy a watch. They use disposable income and they tend to know exactly what they're comfortable with. And so if mm-hmm. there's something that they, that they've been trained to want – and it and it is presented to them at a price that maybe they didn't think that was going to be available for this. That's a very strong formula to get them to buy something right now, isn't it? Yes, I totally agree with that. And and Kickstarter enabled that, and I I think that this is a a successful model in the watch industry. Is it is it a model you say you would specialize in, or would you say this is a little bit different than what you believe that you specialize in? I'm not specialized that much, to be honest, uh, into Kickstarter because I did uh, twice. But I think it's a good tool. Uh, just uh, we use it as, as a tool uh, to, to gather audience and to, to pre-order. So we could have done that also on our own website, like what we did for, for Nevada. 
for Nevada, we didn't use a Kickstarter, but we used the same system, but based on our website. Then it, it depends on the brand legitimacy you have. It depends on the, on the audience you're targeting. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not only Kickstarter that will make your project working. Yeah? If you do, uh, uh, a shitty product of a price, uh, it's not because you put it on Kickstarter that it will work. Uh, you can also make an incredible product with an incredible price and, uh, incredible execution, etc. But if you are not able to bring the audience watch the watch, uh, or being, uh, interested by the, by the product, I think you will fail, uh, because, uh, nobody will, uh, Will, uh, will bring you the, the audience on your, on your project and then it will just be lost between the million projects on Kickstarter that are never find, are never funded. So, so it's a combination of, uh, of all those factors that can make the project work. So I think that there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said. And that is that Kickstarter is a funding platform, but mm-hmm. it functions today more like a tool in the yeah. sense that you must draw audiences to it, you must basically draw traffic to it mm-hmm. and tell people about your campaign. Exactly. Because if you just rely on Kickstarter to let people know about it, there's just too much competition on the platform. So built into all of this, and again, that's why it's interesting that you said you don't even need to do it on, on Kickstarter anymore. That's true. You can just do a pre-order mm-hmm. campaign anywhere. The mm-hmm. idea is that the marketing side of it, the attention side of it, the the side about letting everyone know about this and convincing them during this campaign period, this becomes the crucial task. Success during this part is very, very important. Yeah, that's what I, I for example, for Argon, um, our first market is uh, Singapore on, uh, on people who bought the watch. Second market now I think is Hong Kong uh, and the US and and you can explain that because uh, I was in business trip in in February uh, for Nevada and Vulcan in Hong Kong and Singapore and I was uh, wearing uh, the the first prototype of Argon and when I share on my personal Instagram that I was in Hong Kong wearing this this prototype I received a lot of message from from watch collector. Uh, that wanted to, to see the, the prototype in real. And, uh, and I used that to, that prototype to show to all my meetings. And, uh, and then I got invited by, um, very cool, uh, watch collectors club in Hong Kong, like Chi and, uh, and, and watch Ho. And, uh, and same thing also, uh, by, um, in, uh, in Singapore. And, uh, so, uh, I met a lot of people in the real life, showing them the real product that was going to come on Kickstarter. Without that, I would have not sell, sold zero, zero watches on Kickstarter in Singapore. I, I just I want to point out something that is really important that you said. You had a physical working prototype. Yeah. And a lot of the campaigns on Kickstarter, maybe still today, I don't know, never had that. There's no pictures of a real watch. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of computer designs and projections and examples that are, you know, what you basically call a fancy artist rendering. But there isn't a physical uh, product. And I think that this is really, really important. When you are in a position of having something and saying, I know what it takes to make it. I've already made a successful one. I just need to make more of what I've already made. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying you're perfect and you can easily make a thousand pieces of it or more Mm -hmm. than that. But you're in a far better position if all you do is have a design on paper. A watch design on paper is proof of nothing other than an idea. An idea Mm -hmm. is nothing without execution. Having an industrialized product adds so much trust. Consumers know it. I I, I think that you'll agree that trying to get a pre-order campaign without it is is very risky. Zero chance. Zero chance to succeed if you don't have a... Uh, a real product to show and to and to wear even for yourself, uh, especially when you have a, a strange design like we have with Argon. A, a lot of people were thinking that the watch was unwearable, so because uh, a lot of guys like like me are, have small wrists and uh, and are thinking it, it's too big. But as there is no lugs, uh, if you have not tried it, you cannot find feeling it. So so this kind of thing reassures the customers, especially in Asia. Uh, with the small wrist, and uh, so, and uh, that, that's how you you get your audience, and that's also how you get the buzz and the hype. Uh, without that, I will not. I think we would have not succeed that that uh, that, that huge. Uh, it would have not been possible. Your career trajectory 
so far is very interesting. You're you're still very young, but you've done a lot of things and I'm actually quite fascinated about using your career path as a model for others. I hope you're okay with that. I mean, I know you're a private guy, but you know, you've most of your professional career has been in the watch industry. You've had a number of different roles from, you know, big corporate groups to, you know, companies you've started. Mm-hmm. And you started to get involved in both the manufacturing and the marketing side, seemingly mm-hmm. equally, which, again, people tend to choose one or the other. So being interested in both of those things and other things, of course, but at least those two, I think are so important in giving you the ability to do what you do. Talk a little bit about your development um, as, a, as a watch industry professional and a little bit about the various experience ha- you've had and how it's led to you uh, being in the position you are right now where you are a not just a watch model maker and a head of, a, of, of existing historic brands, but a maker of brands. It's, it's, you, you, you do a lot and it, it's a great mm-hmm. thing, but there's something different about you than the others. Otherwise, they would be doing it too. <laughs> uh, but first, I, I was not destined at all to work in the, in the watch industry. I'm from uh, Cognac, from the southwest of France. Uh, I was more, uh, I made all my internship in, uh, in the wine and spirit industry uh, at Hennessy, at uh, Belvedere, vodka, this kind of stuff. I made my internship of, uh, my last internship at L'Oréal in the cosmetics, in the marketing division also. And, uh, and then my first job, it was in 2009, uh, was at uh, Zenith because uh, it was the, the only job interesting on the LVMH platform at that time with the financial crisis and uh, etc. So I, right. I, I landed uh, in Le Locle a bit. Uh, I was starting to have some interest about watches and vintage watches uh, because my father had a, a little, very little collection uh, of old Leap and vintage Omega uh, constellation. So I was seeing uh, Omega constellation from him a lot of times. And, uh, and, and, and so I landed in Le Loc with uh, Jean-Frédéric Dufour, who was uh, just restarting Zenith after uh, uh, crazy years of uh, past uh, uh, predecessor. Who, and, ha- who uh, heads Rolex now, just in case anyone doesn't know that? Yeah, he's the, now the CEO of Rolex. And I'm still in contact with him, and, uh, and, uh, and um, he's like, a, yes, a mentor. Uh, so um, it was a good, very good chance, good opportunity for me to work at Zenith at that moment because I think the marketing team was like 20 people before he arrived and, uh, and then only three to five people, uh, because the, 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 the situation of Zenith at that time was, uh, in very bad uh, position. So it was like a last chance uh, to, to resuscitate the brand. And, uh, what Dufour did, uh, he, he got inspired by all the vintage Pieces, the El Primero with the three colors that you know, uh, the Captain Collection, the Elite Collection, and he bring it to the uh, back uh, to the to the people, and that's what they that's what the people wanted. So it was a very big experience for me. I was able to make some product marketing. I was uh, opening the Instagram account, YouTube channel, uh, the new website. At that time, it was uh, like a flash uh, shitty website. And then to bring a mobile phone website, uh, application. It was the beginning of all these community things. And, um, that was a big luck because I was able to do many things in a company that was still in LVMH. So kind of big group. So you had some, some relative uh, means and, and, and a bit of, uh, even if it's a, a very small company in 12MH, probably the smallest company in LVMH, uh, for sure in the watch industry. Uh, but it was a great chance for me. Then I moved to Gégère Le Coultre, where it was a bigger company with Jérôme Lambert, who is now head of uh, Richemont, uh, which is a computer man doing many things in the same time, but uh, with uh, extraordinary uh, memory. It's insane to work with this guy. Uh, it, so it was a great experience also to have been in touch with him and to see how he was uh, handling uh, also the business part. And uh, so Gégère Le Coult was a very uh, complementary um, experience of uh, of Zenith. But uh, in myself, I knew that I was not a guy to work in the big group and to be political and to follow the the step by step, uh, and to, uh, and to, uh, gravitate all the, all the, how do you say that? The, the ladder one by one. 
and I had uh, some entrepreneurship spirit. So I, I quit Jarlo Poultre. I launched my Kickstarter with William L. Uh, based on a, a vintage watch I own uh, from my grand grand uncle. So I, I, uh, the inspiration was the vintage, a bit like what I've seen at Zenith to really to cool watch, but at an affordable prices. So, and I made like 200,000 USD in a few weeks, uh, alone in my, uh, in my bedroom. <laughs> and, uh, that's how I started, uh, William L to, to a few million USD of turnover, uh, with a worldwide distribution. I sold William L, uh, three, four years ago. And then, uh, with the supplier, uh, who was doing a part of my William L watch, a French guy named uh, Rémi Chabra, owning the Mont Richard Group, which is a black label, uh, or white label, uh, I don't remember in English, uh, with doing a lot of watches to many brands from, uh, yeah, white, from white the label to the top. Makes sense. We understand that. Yeah, white label, sorry. And, uh, and, uh, and he was in touch with the guy owning, uh, Nevada Grenchen uh, name. So I, I said that there was a lot of potential with this brand. And that's how I, I convinced them to him and the, and the billionaire guy running the brand to remade Nevada Grenchen great again and to, to, to do what the people want with the chronomaster, with the right size, right diameter, right prices, pre-order online. And I mixed my, uh, how do you say? Yes, my, um, Experience at uh, Zenith uh, Geiger with my experience of entrepreneurship with uh, micro brand of WML. I mix those both uh, experience to make uh, work uh, Nevada. And then, thanks to the success of Nevada, uh, under my radar of uh, vintage one to revive and to to help, there was also Vulcan. So I uh, I was put in touch with the owner of Vulcan. And, uh, and I propose them the same kind of business plan I, I did with, uh, with Nevada. Unless that Vulcan was still operating, there was, there was still a, a manufacturer, there is still a, there is a movement, a manufacturer movement with the cricket, which is, uh, an amazing movement, uh, part of the history of the watchmaking industry. But that was not, uh, uh, well managed in terms of product, price, and communication. And, and uh, I was thinking I would, I would have been able to, to help them on this. And that's how I became an external consultant uh, at Vulcan for two years now. Almost two years, or one year and a half, I don't remember. And that we relaunched the cricket uh, first, first in uh, September last year, deliver December last year, and January this year. So yes, one year and a half. And, uh, a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah, and then I also bought Excelsior Park uh, to Tourno Group uh, two years ago. But and I relaunched also a bit of um, of pre-ordering, but uh, I have not enough time. <laughs> and then I uh, and then I met Theo uh, last summer, and we launched Argon. So yes, the the, the last few years have been uh, quite uh, quite busy, but uh, but a lot I of opportunity. Feel... And, and yeah. I think it's in, it's mm. a good tendency to want to say yes to opportunity. Of course, exactly. at some point, mm-hmm. we need to learn a limit. You've probably already recognized that yeah. if you say yes <laughs> you, for yeah. all the time, you you may head to an early grave, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Now, I, I, I want to talk a lot about what you're doing now, but I want to go back a little bit more and talk about William L. You had this great experience working in, in-house at pretty interesting times under very impactful people at Zenith and Jager Le Colt. And then you decided to leave and become an entrepreneur. Now, this is very frequent where you have watch designers, for example, who never feel like they can quite get what they want done at a corporate company. And then they leave and they start their own thing, for better or worse. But usually you think to themselves, if you would just would have stayed at that company and somehow had them do it, you know, you could have been even better off. Did you ever flirt with the idea of maybe executing some of your creative ideas with those companies? Or was it very clear that they were very rigid, they were really into doing what they wanted to do, and that if you wanted to um, you know, utilize some of the tools that were now available online and through digital marketing, you were basically going to have to do by yourself or with someone else? I think I would not never been able to have the, the freedom uh, to, to make uh, what I've been able to do outside because... Um, I was uh, I was nobody, you know, enfin, not nobody, but I was like just a, uh, a young uh, project manager uh, at Zenith or at uh, at Deger. So I would have never been able to launch a brand inside the group or to 
to make uh, what I have been able to do. And when I was looking at, at my boss, uh, that what they were doing, and the boss of my boss, I was uh, not thinking it was for me. Uh, so uh, it was not possible for me to express myself like I was able to do it with... Uh, with Nevada on a Vulcan, I, um, I can do whatever I want. I have the, the freedom to, to create new things, to, to, to speak to the audience on Instagram, to say, Hey, well, this is the new project we think to launch with Nevada. Look, it's the vintage one. Uh, uh, do you think it makes sense? Yes, no. You, you, in one, in one day, even in one hour, you take a decision that would take months to, to make with, uh, within, uh, Geiger or within, uh, uh, Zenith. So, and especially at, uh, at Richmond Group, because when you, when you do, for example, a, a marketing campaign in the Richmond Group, uh, for any brands, first you have to be, to have the campaign validated inside the, inside the watch brand. So by the communication director, marketing director, the CEO, the, the, etc. And, uh, and just simplify like this. But then you have to make this campaign validated by, uh, uh by the Richmond Group. And, uh, and the marketing department of the Richmond Group. So even if you have worked like months on a, on a, on a campaign and, uh, and you think it's the right thing for the brand to do, but at the Richmond Group, because they were not happy this day, or I don't know, uh, something went wrong with their lunch, uh, your campaign can be rejected like that. And, uh, and then you have to redo again. And, uh, and then it, it, that sounds it horrible, by the way. No, I mean, man, thank you no, for man. explaining that, but it sounds <laughs> like an absolute disaster. And again, <laughs> Richemont likes to remind people, they're like, we're a finance company. So to get like decisions made, you have to do it like it's a finance company's making a decision, which, yeah, I guess that's that. But like, I mean, look, look, look at you. You're young, you have all these ideas. You don't even try, you don't even bother trying. You realize from your time there, what it's like to get things made, and you just immediately try elsewhere. Like the the brain drain that happens over there when people like you realize that it's a dead end. It's appalling. If it just it makes me feel so sad because you you but you know you're the exception. Most people would just be defeated and be like, "Well, I'm going to some other industry that will listen to me." Not everyone mm-hmm. would say, "You know, I can do it myself." You're the rare one, and I think you know that. Yeah, but I don't know, but uh, thanks. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I'm very. Uh... Uh, I, I never um, uh, abandon. <laughs> I'm, uh, I always try, and uh, I, I, have, uh, I try to have the confidence to think that what I want to do is the the cool thing to do. And uh, and sometimes I fail, and sometimes uh, it do- doesn't work the way I want. But uh, at least I try again, and I and I um, and I think uh, I made a lot of mistakes. For example, with William L, that I will not do now with Nevada, and uh, and with Vulcan. So. Uh, Any examples? I, for example, to, to have too much stock, uh, to, to make too much, um, uh, discount to distributors that then, uh, fuck you up to sell your stock to others or to make themselves discount that kill your product online. And, and then you're unable to, to sell full price product because the, the consumer will, will find it online at a lower price. So, to better control your distribution, better control your discount. Never, in fact, never do discount, and uh, that's what I, I do uh, now, and that uh, I will never change with uh, Nevada or, or Vulcan. So you have fair, fair prices all year, no discount, and uh, and you make your your money. You take maybe less margin than others, but at least you you do something also that is uh, uh, correct for the consumer and this kind of thing. I want to examine what you just said because I think it's really important to get into the details there. You first said no discount, and but then you said fair prices all year. And I think it's really important to examine what you're talking about. I think you're commenting on the practice where a lot of companies would, would create a, an arbitrary retail price that they knew that watches weren't being sold at. The mm-hmm. retail price was the starting point for a varying degree of discount, whether it was a very modest discount, a 5 or 10%. Higher discount, fifteen to twenty-five percent, or or something really intense that you know was thirty percent or more. That was just sort of like their opening volley at at trying to get the consumer. It was very common practice that that's how you would move luxury watches. Is that you would make people feel that there was a discount opportunity, 
uh, and that they were getting a much higher value thing at a lower price. They felt like they were getting something that was like really high end and it was, you know, serving a, a, a business interest. Now, I'm not saying that that, that model is, is completely gone and there's value to it, but you are sort of part of a new generation model that says, you know what, just stop it with the original overpricing. It's silly and no one takes it seriously. And then when you have multiple places to buy, the only way that one retailer is able to compete versus another retailer is through a lower price. So then if you want to have multiple parties online selling your watch in the way that you would have in the real world, it just becomes a race to the bottom of who will discount the most, which erodes the value and, and, and I think more importantly makes it so that nobody spends retail price ever. And so what you and, and others like you have said is let's move away from that. Let's just begin with the price which is fair and let's not make it a habit to discount as a way uh, to get people to buy watches. Again, would you agree with that? What would you add to that? Yes, exactly. And, uh, and there is a, even brand who are just doing this, uh, this business model to uh, just say uh, one watch for free or uh, always at 75% discount. Uh, and and uh, and making a fake uh, retail price just to to make think people that they are doing a bargain, but they're not. They're just uh, it's just a scam. So so yes, it's very important to be transparent about the the the, the real pricing, and then to don't move off that line. And that's what is the probably the the hardest part. It is. It, it takes discipline, and I think that we've we've come multiple steps. It started with. You know, 10 years ago or so, let's just say that it was the Invicta model, right? Which is like retail price 2000 right now $300. <laughs> and that was just, I know it sounds silly, but that's exactly what it was. And that was, that was the common way of doing things. But then once Kick started coming in, there's a new vocabulary, which was cutting out the middleman and <laughs> costs going down because of, of manufacturing efficiencies direct-to-consumer started being something that people were talking about. This was sort of a new language and a new set of things for consumers to think about. And all of a sudden, consumers just stopped trusting a lot of prices. And so anybody selling a product, especially a high-end product, had to fundamentally rethink what it was that they were trying to price, what the story around the pricing. And again, the, the jury's still out on the exact right thing to do. But for Guillaume and his generation, especially in the watch industry, the answer is just trust and transparency. Have a fair price, consistently come out with things that consumers don't feel are padded with margin. And if you do that enough over time and stick to it, you'll earn the trust of enough people enough of the time. Again, would you agree or disagree? Yes, I totally agree. It's uh, it's uh, it's very true. Uh, you just have to be clear on this and uh, and, uh, and and stick to it. Uh, and also now people have more way to understand the real cost of uh, of a watch. If if they know that uh, a Japanese automatic movement will cost less than. Uh, uh, Swiss movement and uh, Swiss assembling will cost more than uh, Chinese or uh, or other uh, assembling. So they are they are more also able to have information on that. So and to compare and to see who is the brand who is uh, offering uh, another price or uh, or not. And uh, and based on that, they, they can make their choice uh, knowing the knowing the rules. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Do you ever laugh at some of the prices from other companies, especially some of the more opportunistic pricing, where you see 
especially very large numbers, and you knew they were just making it up, or or you know how yeah. they increase the prices of watches year after year, and for silly, mm. for silly predictable. Like it, it's so, it's so arbitrary. Sometimes it's almost humorous, isn't it? Exactly. I saw some uh, some pricing reunion. Uh in big groups and sometimes it makes no sense. Uh, it's just profit for profit and uh, or it's just um, to, to to put a big price to to IP it or not. Uh, it's sometimes you it makes no sense. Uh, for example, uh, we have launched uh, the F seventy seven in Geneva, uh, so it's an uh, integrated uh, bracelet watch. Uh, uh, inspired by our '70s collection, uh, from, which from Nevada. You have so many brands. Nevada. You have to you have to tell people which one. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> Nevada. Yes, Nevada Grand Chain. <laughs> and uh, and then we made half a million online in a 77 hour of pre-order, and uh, almost uh, the same amount for for wholesale. So it's uh, it was a, it's a great success for us. And uh, and when you look at the watch and the quality and. Uh, and the perception and the feeling you have it when you see that uh, an IWC uh, engineer uh, costs like 12,000 and we cost like 1,000, you cannot, uh, to be honest, uh, you cannot, uh, uh, selling a 12,000 at IWC, it makes no sense. Uh, even if they have a better movement for sure, maybe manufacture or rich manufacture thing, it's, uh, it's insane. So, but then, <laughs> it's a, it's a choice of marketing to to make the watch expensive because they want to probably competition the the Royal Oak or or, or the Vacheron. But uh, this kind of thing. Also at Gégé, hein, now at Gégé Le Coultre, if you want to buy a classic Reverso uh, manual winding, it's it's almost ten thousand, or eight or nine thousand. It's it's crazy. Before it was the gift for the for the wedding, and uh, and you you were able to buy. Uh, uh, a reverso at three, three, three thousand or four thousand. Now it's impossible for most of the French people. It's hard to feel like it's fair because you know, because it's yes, <laughs> improvements have been made to some of these classic watches, but you know, and it's 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 every it's not it's not just Richemont. It's a lot of different mm. groups. You know, I, I look yeah, at the Speedmaster, for example, I, the Even Omega Speedmaster. Speed I've always thought should be. Not, I don't want to say totally entry level, but it should be an entrance into the world of cool mechanical watches. Meaning, mm-hmm. someone should be able to aspire for it. I always thought one time that it should have a price of like three thousand dollars. It shouldn't be more than yeah. three thousand dollars. You know, yes, I know that other Omega watches are going to cost more. Their philosophy was totally the opposite. Let's make it an icon. Let's make it more expensive. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, but all this is done. This this very arrogant way of looking at pricing and branding is open up this massive market underneath it. There's this enormous market of independence, micro brands, enthusiast-driven brands, call it what you will. You are a part of this industry, which exists because you can make a really nice mechanical watch and, and price it at between one and $3,000 and make a lot of people happy and for whatever reason, the corporate-driven brands just seem almost entirely disinterested, whether it's low volume, low margin, they don't want it associated with their $15,000 watches. I don't really know exactly what they're thinking, but wouldn't mm-hmm. you agree that they've, they've actually themselves created this massive market underneath them and it's because of their neglect that it's been able to thrive? Yeah, for sure. But I think... Uh the Swedish group, uh, Cash Cow, uh, is uh, Omega and, uh, and the Speedmaster. Uh, they lose a lot of money probably on uh, other collection. They want to make more profit on the one who is selling well. But at the end of the day, I think they are starting to digging their own grave because uh, at a moment, people will not be able or will not want to spend that amount of money on the, on the Speedmaster. Uh, they were thinking that the Chinese um, tourists uh, Will continue to come in Europe and uh, and and bought it because now the European classic European cannot buy it, uh, and when the Chinese are not coming, but it's uh, it's a big issue, uh, and then they're going to be they are just now dependent on this, and they are losing their their core target that uh, that uh, now is uh, is looking for uh, us, uh, so and we are happy to offer them. Uh, but I think it's yes, it's um, it's not a good thing for the watchmaking industry because 
at the end of the day, you will probably uh, lose a lot of people who want to wear cool watches and they will just wear smart smartwatch or, or just nothing uh, because they are not stupid and they don't want to pay overpriced thing. So, so it's a uh, it's it's a dangerous it's way. It's an issue. I, I know. Yeah, it's an issue. It's probably the the biggest issue I think uh, for uh, for watchmaking. So let's let's move over to sort of creativity and art and design. You've had some very successful products, whether it's a pre-order campaign or just a new watch that you wanted uh, to launch. There's got to be some method to the way that you figure out what to launch. I don't know if you have a formula or you just have very good taste and you know what people like. But tell me a little bit about your process behind designing what the product is going to be and how it's going to be priced. Because you you have a pretty good track record. And again, I believe that there's there's a system behind it. But I am very uh, selfish on this, to be honest. I, I really, uh, I, I do watches I, I, I want to wear. <laughs> okay. So for it's uh, if I don't want to wear and the other thing, uh, so this is the first thing. But the, no, I, then it depends. To be honest, I, if you tell me three years ago, I would have launched a carbon uh, shape, uh, spaceship shape watch uh, uh, with orange strap, and that will be the watch I will uh, we wear the most. Because right now I'm wearing the most the carbon space one from Arun. I would have not believed you. So I think your 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 taste, uh, like your personality, change uh, every day. So you. Sure. you so this is uh, the first thing, personal taste, and and the, the second thing is for for example for 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 Nevada, I use a lot a lot a lot the the community, the the Instagram, uh, the newsletter. And I, uh, I use a lot, uh, the, the passion of the, our, um, followers and, and I, and I, and I see, for example, for, for, for launch, but the F77, this is our biggest launch on Nevada. Uh, it started because one of the followers on Instagram, uh, shared his own F77 that I was not aware of, hein, to be honest. I didn't know this, uh, this, this, this collection of a few, uh, uh, not a few months now, but like uh, one year and a half ago, before we start the development. Uh, and because of him sharing this, I reshare then, uh, because I, I'm still managing the Instagram of Nevada most of the time. That's also how I, um, I, I am still on the pulse of what people want or not. And also on the pulse of the after-sale service, on the, on the pulse of the, of the what is going on. And, uh, and I can then uh, make the correction or to say uh, we are not good on after-sale, we are good on uh, or we are good or not. Uh, we have an issue here on delivery time because I have complained in direct live, so I can see that. And uh, and so I test. Then uh, I, I reshared on the stories and like and the and the DM section exploded when they, they saw the design. So I said, "Fuck! I think we have something to to dig there." I then bought online on Chrono Twenty Four on eBay a few pieces uh, that was very hard to find, to be honest, because it was quite rare and uh, but not, not not that expensive, but quite rare. Then I made a nice photo shooting with the F77 vintage pieces. I share clear and cool pictures of that on the Instagram. And then we break the like, comment, record. And people were saying, we want this reddition, we want this reddition. So then we shared the process of development. We shared the, 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 the prototyping. Uh, we shared the, the tires. We shared the, the IDs we had. And then we had some feedbacks. Uh, a lot of feedbacks, good feedbacks, but fun, constructive feedbacks. On the, and, and thanks to all this, when we launch the product, we already know that people will like it because they have participated to the process of selection because they have like or not like. Uh, and sometimes I do the same and I have less like, less comments, less interest. And when it's the case, bah, you just don't do it. So, and that, that's, I think that's a very good recipe for me. And then the price. No, I, I'm I'm thinking a lot about your ability to get feedback relatively quickly from ostensibly other consumers. And traditionally, watch companies did not have a lot of direct feedback from consumers. They had feedback from retailers and yeah. wholesalers and distributors and things like that. What What is different, in your opinion, between the type of feedback a retailer might give to a brand and the type of feedback a consumer would give? Because it seems like the era of listening to the consumer has resulted in pretty different watches than were made in the era when they were listening primarily to retailers. What do you have to th- say about that? 
it's a, it's a, it's a first good point. The other good point is that most of the guys and the executive uh, in this company are not real watch enthusiasts or watch collectors. They just want to make things that'll sell. They want to make something that'll sell. They, it doesn't necessarily suit them to be a watch lover, yes. and, and it takes real passion. And, and, and for example, uh, you, you have a lot of people coming from uh, Procter Gamble, uh, L'Oréal, or uh, they, they were just selling soap uh, or cars or, uh, or or wine, and, and they just know nothing about watches. So, so when you have a a meeting, product meeting with guys like that, uh, they, they will never take in consideration the price of you, the, the consumer will resell his watch. They just don't give a shit. They don't give a shit to the, what, what are they collecting, uh, elsewhere? What is the price of this competition, uh, that they could buy a, a better watch on the vintage market? A lot of executives in the watch industry are just don't, are not watch aficionados. So first thing, they don't know the market very well and they know the market less well than collectors or, colle or collectioners or consumers. Yes, and the other way is, you're right, is that they, they also went at the feedback from the from the reseller and distributor that had the different objectives and uh, and sometimes are telling good or bad things. And, and also, to be honest, uh, when I was working at L'Oréal, you had a lot of uh, panel Nielsen, a lot of uh, data, a lot of uh, uh, metrics to take <laughs> decisions. You know, when I arrive in, uh, in Zenith or, or even GG, I enfin, <laughs> panel Nielsen, they don't even know what it is. So uh, they just, uh, oh, this product is nice. Oh, I like the color. Well, okay, well, put this price. Oh, okay, why not? Okay, well, it's good. And... Uh, And the day after, ah, oh, but no, maybe purple was better. Uh, I'm not sure. Ah, uh, oh, but why not do a 44 millimeter? Uh, and, uh, and they have fucking no idea of what they're doing sometimes. So, but it's, it's uh, the ugly truth. Huh? Uh, it's, uh, it's so, crazy. So let's examine this. You, using your own personal tastes, your ability to sort of gauge reactions online, looking at yeah. the things people say and and some of the ratings, you know, that, that you know, like likes and things like that that posts get. You come to some personal conclusions. You are looking at data. It's informal, but it's a real analysis. And you're, yeah. you know, with with modest means coming up with pretty good outcomes which lead to products that people want to buy. Isn't this something that the big brands should just be doing? I mean, if there is no market directive behind what to make and most good products are the result of at least one person, you, Guillaume, or somebody else thinking that a watch should exist, why can't they put more decision-making ability into the hands of one person when it comes to making a watch. Why are they so resistant to that? I mean, maybe we can't answer that, but it's an interesting question, right? No, because uh, as I told you, uh, even if you have a good idea in this kind of brand, uh, your idea will be uh, destroyed by the hierarchy. Uh, or oh, the hierarchy. The, so it's the, the bureaucracy, group. politics. Yeah. It's, it's not about merit there. It's about, are you allowed to make this decision? For, for, yes, exactly. And, uh, and I've seen very cool ideas coming from design team or from a, a product team. But uh, when they introduced, when they made the presentation to the marketing guy, uh, director or communication director, the guy was just in bad mood or just uh, has bad taste or just coming from, uh, from, uh, from, has nothing <laughs> to, and, 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 and he said no, you know? And, and it's very frustrating for the guy uh, who had the good idea because his idea will never come out. And, uh, and uh, so the guy is frustrated, then he do just the shit uh, uh, the guy upstairs want, and then in the end, bah, you have uh, uh, a lot of shit on the market. Interesting, interesting. So let's spend the last part of the conversation talking about this new interesting business model that you're a part of, and that is this sort of com combination of forces I'm talking about, you know, with the Mont-Richard group, and that mm -hmm. is the marriage of manufacturing and brand building. And the way that I'll sort of set this up is you have this one group whose specialty is producing watches. Mm -hmm. And it comes out of a world where a lot of watches would be ordered and there would be a lot of brands coming out with them. These days there's less direct market demand to make watches. So if you want to satisfy capacity to produce watches in an industrial sense, you then are in a smart position these days to have some guaranteed orders. It's better if you have 
the actual brands. Now, this is not 100% novel, but I think that it's emerging in a sort of interesting new way where it isn't Richemont owning a bunch of brands, but it's sort of a sort of more casual grassroots this situation where a manufacturer uh, has a direct investment in brands, but allows them to be run, puts them maybe on a little bit of a, of, of a, of a tether, but still has someone like yourself be in charge, call the shots, make the decisions, do what's best for the brand, and the, and, and the manufacturing side is there to make sure that you can get watches made at a fair price so that they can be competitive in the marketplace. And, and if you, you know, preserve the equity, it's a really good symbiotic relationship between someone who wants to sell a watch and somebody that wants to make a watch. Would you agree that's sort of how it's being set up? What else would you comment about this interesting new ecosystem that you're part of? In fact, um, with Remy, we, we have created uh, an ecosystem. It, that means that we have uh, the production uh, capabilities, but we have also a team uh, who is doing the, the Shopify website. We have a team who is doing community management. We have a team who is doing the customer service. Uh, and this is for, for Nevada, for Accessor Park, now also for, for Vulcan. And that means that when I had the idea uh, with Theo to make Aragon, we just used the system, the ecosystem that we had already created with Remy. So that means that it was like a, a plug and play. So if I had to create a brand from start with Argon, I will need then to have a, a guy to make the website, guy to make this, guy to make that, and then guy to make the PR, uh, guy to make, uh, and, um, and thanks to the, yes, the ecosystem, Moishar, we can, uh, just plug and play because we, we didn't hire more people to make the website. We didn't hire more people to make the photography. We have uh, an internal studio uh, of photo and video. We, so we also save a lot of external costs thanks to that because uh, when you do a picture in Switzerland uh, for a watch, you, you pay like 1,000, 2,000 for USD for one picture. Uh, to make a movie, you can spend uh, 20, 50, 100,000. Uh, but when you have an internal studio, you don't pay that. You just pay the photographer every month. You pay by the, the equipment. But at the end, it's it's time consuming. Fine, you spend less time to explain the guy what you want. You don't pay that much crazy uh, amount of money. And uh, and same thing for the customer service. You have someone already who know how it's working, and and you gain time. So it's uh, thanks to this ecosystem that we have uh, bah, started to work five years, uh, three, yes, almost five years ago now. Uh, we can launch Argon this way. And, uh, and, uh, and tomorrow, if we have another idea with, uh, another crazy watchmaker and we, we, we can make the same thing. And also same thing for the, for the prototyping. If you want to prototype a crazy watch like the Argon in, a, in such short of period, uh, with a new with a new, uh, supplier that you don't even know, it will take much more time. It will cost much more money and you will not be as proactive and as, um, also cost efficient. So, and you will not be able to bring the Argon at this price too. So that's all this thing. I think, yes, it's the, the right thing you were speaking about, or I'm totally wrong. No, it's, it's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and I just think it's so important to discuss this because we're talking about the very frontier, the latest in what's happening with emerging business models in the watch space. We know that there is going to be interest in mechanical watches of many different types, for a long time, probably long after you and I are around. But we don't necessarily know of what brands, what price points, what designs people are going to want. So it's like we know there's going to be demand. We know the market likes it. But it's, it's a constant invention of how to make it and how to price it and how to get it to people. Um, in, in other podcasts and sort of on the weekly show that I just recorded before this podcast, we were just talking about how fragmented it is. And I think it's so interesting to sort of end on the topic of the fragmentation. Trust is so important in an industry that sells something as expensive as a wristwatch, yet we have one of the most fragmented environments for buying it. There's so many ways of buying it just online, not to mention also in the real world from 
you know, not 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 just authorized or gray market or newer used, but just the different types of stores and different types of uh, uh, places. What, in your opinion, are some of the right things that need to happen in in wristwatch e-commerce to create trust, to create longevity? You already said one thing, which was which was you know, get away from the discounting model. What are yeah. some other best practices, in your opinion? Good question. Uh, fair prices, uh, transparency. Um, Quality uh, and some hype, some uh, some cool things. I think uh, Swatch made something quite crazy uh, with uh, with the Swatch and Omega thing. Uh, they, they 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 succeed to excited people that are not specially wearing cool watches or watches at all, and they bring back people to go to the stores and to. Uh, even if you are not uh, a fan or, or not of the of the of the watch or the, and the quality of the end uh, product, uh, but they, they they succeed to do something that is quite unique and uh, and that was refreshing to the watch world. So I think you need more of that and uh, and you you need less uh, ivory tower brand uh, doing uh, watches for ivory tower only people. And uh, this is the way I see. Uh, my work in the watch industry is to bring to not to masses because uh, for a lot of people 2000 is still a huge amount in the, into a watch but uh, to to bring cool things cool complication at a good at a good price and that's uh, that's my mentor my my, my uh, how do you say that my uh, your motto no, yeah, well, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm, still a, I'm, I'm still a bit jet lagged, to be honest. <laughs> no, you're you're but, you're uh, yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're in Hong Kong now, and yeah. I think what's important, you know, is is also to explain that your career it, it requires you to be in a lot of different places and do a lot of different things. You know, you have to master different jobs. You have to travel yes. to the you know yeah. edge, total other different edges of the world. Um, how do you? How do you create sustainability in this role? Because I think we all know that all the successful watch brand managers live crazy lives of constantly get it going around everywhere. What's the mm-hmm. what's the way of making it manageable in your opinion? I uh, I play golf. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, it's my uh, distressful moment. Uh, so I, I try to 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 play golf when I in Hong Kong is quite difficult, but uh, I was in a in California two weeks ago for the wine affair, and then I I I, uh, I took three days to play Pebble Beach and uh, and a few um, golf courses uh, in the area. So uh, for me to to walk in the nature and to concentrate on the on the golf swing, and uh, I, I became totally addicted by this uh, by this game uh, during COVID. Uh, that's how I was uh, I was uh, escaping to the COVID uh, situation. And, uh, and so that's my, my big, uh, and to do, uh, yes, a bit of more cardio uh, sport too, uh, uh, in addition. Uh, but yes, it helped me to calm down to, at first I was like breaking clubs. I was, uh, throwing club away. I was uh, super, uh, <laughs> I'm a piece of shit on the golf course. Very bad, very bad, very bad. So, and then I, 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 I started to play better, to calm down, to, um, uh, not be too uh, over excited like I can be, and uh, and that's a, a, a good way for me to come down and to escape also the the the, the stress. And uh, but um, to be honest, I'm not that that stress per- person too. Uh, I, I I have a lot of luck uh, in what I what I do. I'm very thankful to 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 what happened to me and to um, the way I'm able to live from my passion. Uh, so. Uh, and when you when you work on your passion on your people on the thing that you don't think you're working on, uh, it's it's very cool. Uh, I met a lot of nice person. Uh, I've met a lot of collectors in Hong Kong again uh, this week, and I've exchanged with them. Uh, uh, I've seen crazy uh, supplier. I've met uh, an amazing watchmaker in in China last week. Uh, Barons. I don't know if you have met them. Barons. Of course. In Shenzhen. The guy is doing. Crazy thing, it's right? Insane. So cool. I never seen in person, but it was so cool. Very cool. The guy is a genius, you know. If this guy was in Europe, if he was that, he was that time to watches in the yeah. Geneva. I met them yeah, all there. Yeah, did, uh, he told me that, but uh, uh, I never seen in person, and I can tell it's uh, it's great. So yeah, 
No, but this kind of thing. So meet people, meet new, uh, new way to, to do things. And, uh, and, uh, and also that's how I, I can imagine. I have, uh, also uh, the luck to have a terrific girlfriend with enough patience with me. So it's, uh, it's also <laughs> a cool, <laughs> it's also a cool, uh, cool thing to have to, to, to stay uh, connected also. And, uh, wonderful. And that's it. Yeah. Well, Guillaume, we're 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 out of time. I want everyone yep. to go check out the many current entrepreneurial uh, endeavors of uh, Guillaume uh, Lyde. They are Nevada Grenchen, Excelsior Park, uh, Argonne, Vulcan. Uh, maybe may, may more in the future. We'll see. Um, but this has been a this has been a great chat, and um, we'll we'll connect again soon to talk about what's uh, what's coming next. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation, Ariane. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com. <laughs>